from the Mercy One Studio. Making it personal with Bishop William Johnson on Iowa Catholic Radio and iowacatholicradio.com. Welcome to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. I'm Stan Ashes, a seminarian and a summer intern with the diocese. On today's show, we're visiting with Dr. Russell Hittinger, uh, Warren Professor Emeritus of Catholic Studies at the University of Tulsa. He's on the Governing Council of the, of the uh, Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas and is a vid- visiting professor at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, Graduate Theological Union Berkeley, and the University of Chicago School of Law. But uh, before we get to our guest, uh, Bishop, what's on your mind? Oh, first of all, a little delayed entry for us, you know, 45 seconds to build up the suspense. You know, I demand those time back, but uh, I I won't hold my breath on that as well. So uh, here we are, August 7th, yesterday, the death anniversary of St. Paul VI, uh, in 1978. I can actually remember that. Uh, This young man, probably about a little uh, younger than you are, uh, Stan, when that was happening, coming back with my buddies, Mike Flummerfeld and... uh, Brad Hildebrand from Clear Lake, uh, Boys of Summer, ready to start our first year of university. And I can remember hearing about the death of all the six on the radio. And I think, okay, God, just leave me alone. I got my life in control. So, you know, that uh, was kind of one of those moments that kind of sticks in my mind where I was holding at a distance there as well. But mm. uh, also a more significant anniversary uh, it's from some respects for our country, the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. Uh, you know, we think about uh, Pearl Harbor as a date that lives in infamy. Uh, those dates, uh, obviously, though, they brought a quick terminus to the war, not a, a shining moment in our American history. And so we're remembering that with our nation's bishops, and uh, obviously Pope Francis was there last November asking, how can we propose peace if we constantly invoke the threat of a nuclear war as a legitimate recourse for the resolution of conflicts? So yesterday, kind of typically since Pope John Paul's, uh, St. John Paul's visit in 1981, uh, starts our 10 days of prayer for peace in the the Catholic Church. I know there are those who out at the uh, uh, U.S. Air Force Command, uh, Drone Command, uh, near the Des Moines Airport, protesting, you know, protesting and just calling to mind the grievous harm and loss of humanity and ongoing effects there. Uh, But I think that's a topic for another show, but we ask the Blessed Mother to pray for all the human family, remembering the violence and injustice of the past as well. So uh, lots of things going on in the Catholic world. We're praying also for Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus. Uh, He's got a bad facial infection. They're telling us it's not serious. But uh, I understand he was also kind of thinking about last things there. Oh, yeah, I think he he asked to be buried in the the tomb, which which Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul, was buried in previously before he was canonized. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his humility, I think, and all of that. You know, <laughs> that he doesn't have his, have his own marked out spot, but he's happy to, as he did in papacy, follow, follow the beloved uh, yeah, John Paul II. For sure. So I think, you know, as uh, Pope Benedict pointed, that he led to the house of the Father in, in that way. So I'm um, grateful to have uh, Dr. Hittinger with us this morning. Uh, Professor Hittinger, uh, actually a, a mentor of mine at a key point in my life as I uh, was pursuing graduate studies, but then fortunate to have the association and even friendship with him through the uh, uh, Tertio Millennial Seminar in Krakow, Poland. So, uh, Dr. Hittinger, it's good to have you with us this morning. Yeah, 
Good morning, old friend. <laughs> Good to hear your voice. I kind of missed you this summer, not being able to, to hang out together. And uh, I always never tired of even sitting in on your lectures. I was always you were always opening up something for me as well. So uh, we'll move in a little bit here. But uh, you know, you're, you're always learning interesting features of your life story. You know, you're you're not totally a southern gentleman, but some Virginia influences and uh, uh, you know, academic uh, family, and now a son who's a professor as well, and even flirted with the. Jesuits for a while. So we're going to take a break here, but uh, maybe any little observations about influences that left an imprint, and then we'll head into some more substantial topics. We'll be right back. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and John Lee Eddie in the Morning is provided by Blessman International. The coronavirus has impacted lives in Iowa and around the world. This is especially true in rural South Africa, where COVID-19 restrictions have led to vulnerable children being hospitalized due to starvation. To combat this hunger, Blessman International now offers a program called One Child at a Time. You can sponsor a child in South Africa for $1 a day. Learn more at BlessmanInternational.org. BlessmanInternational.org. Making it personal with Bishop Johnson. Uh, I'm Stan Ashes here with Bishop William Johnson, and we're speaking with Dr. Hittinger um, from the uh, Catholic Studies uh, Department at the University of Tulsa. Yeah, and he had concluded his uh, noble term of service there, and now an emeritus professor as well. Back on the East Coast, Dr. Hittinger, is that right? How's it going in New Jersey? <laughs> well, we just had uh, remnants of a hurricane that rattled things pretty uh, impressively. Oh, okay. So you've gone from the uh, the tornadoes of uh, Oklahoma Plains to now the the hurricanes, so uh, stormy times as well. So again, you at one point maybe considering a vocation of the Jesuits. Do you think that gives you any insight uh, in the Holy Father and his kind of disposition here, as you've served on the Pontifical Council of Social Sciences and still on the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas? Well, yes, I. I was in the uh, Jesuit seminary for five years, back in the 70s. Um, and, of course, I made the long retreat, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And anyone who does that will have some insight into uh, the Jesuit world, because that's their, that's their spiritual constitution, is uh, the Ignatian method in that, in that retreat. So, yes. I decided that uh, I was cut out to be an academic. And I was just thinking the other day, I've gone for 47 years living on a semester system. <laughs> and it's, it's very close to being a monk without being a monk. Because you get the fall semester, which has Advent, then the spring semester, which is like Lent and Easter... And then uh, you get the summer, ordinary time. <laughs> and you get to divide the seasons. You know what's going to happen next. You can do reflection and writing, and you deal with students. And I wouldn't have given it up for the world. I made the right choice. The problem is, is that kind of reflective life is probably not going to be very available to the next generation of scholars. I mean, we have economic, we have economic, political, and other forces that are making that older way of scholarly life sort of a, a dinosaur. 
That's a, that's an intriguing point uh, you, because of just the upheaval and the, the modes of delivery, the modes of engagement between professors and students, or just that uh, even the whole kind of higher educational system you think is being transformed by by the pandemic or by other factors. Well, the pandemic or the pandemic is transforming the the institutions that were already being transformed. But uh, the chief thing is that. We're learning what a wonderful luxury higher education was once upon a time. I went uh, from first grade all the way through Ph.D., for example, in Catholic schools. Hmm. And uh, I think my last, uh, when I graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 1975 as an undergraduate, uh, I think my total bill, room and board and tuition, was less than four thousand dollars. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> no, no great student loans for you then, huh? You were free of, free of that yoke. No, <laughs> no, no. Wow. It, it was a great luxury that we could move so many people uh, from lower middle class and working class in through higher education over those decades after World War II. It was a wonderful accomplishment. Uh, I will, I'm glad I was part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's kind of providential time in, in American culture and history as well. Uh, we made reference to the Pontifical Council of Social Sciences and the Academy of St. Thomas. Uh, how, how are those bodies uh, involved in the, in the larger mission of the Church and of the Holy Father? Uh, yes, these are academies, and they're not councils. Uh, these academies have no governing role in the Church, but they're founded by the Pope, and and are part of the Holy See, dedicated chiefly to research uh, on perennial topics that the the Holy Father will always be interested in, questions of economics, questions of church-state relations, and so on and so forth, but also on uh, topics that seem to be uh, the most important topics of a particular time or era. For Pope Francis, for example, it's the global uh, climate warming issue mm-hmm. and his understanding of his theological understanding of ecology. Uh, and so their role is once again reflective. It's not political. There's, it, it doesn't get anything done practically in the world, but it's a, these academies are devoted to the ability to sit back and have discussions and do research. So, as you say, kind of the uh, the uh, the contemplative life, able to pursue truth in itself, and, and you know, and, and contribute and enrich the the larger horizon of understanding of of the human condition and the church, and obviously St. Thomas. Uh, when we think about St. Thomas, and it's not hard to make the segue, and by the way, thank you for that friendly little correction about the title there. Uh, always a mentor, gently <laughs> prodding me to be accurate in everything. Uh, uh, you, you continue to devote attention to Pope Leo XIII and his role kind of with the Catholic social justice tradition. Uh, is this just historical interest, or do you, you think there's some uh, uh, more uh, attention and respect that we should be paying to Leo the Thirteenth? Well, Leo the Thirteenth is at the beginning of the modern tradition of Catholic uh, social teaching, and uh, he was. Uh, this is when, after the French Revolution and the rise of the big European nation-states were underway, 
and he was devoted to uh, teaching about how the church, the state, and uh, institutions like domestic institutions, marriage and family, are related one to another. And in a way, this is the, the classic paradigm of all problems in Catholic uh, social teaching. In fact, I dare to say that if we go back to the mid-19th century, when Leo was a young bishop, <laughs> uh, all the way through the day, and you just pay attention to questions of religious liberty, uh, conflict between church and state, and the issue of education, you will have covered about 80% of everything in Catholic social doctrine. These are, these are perennial issues. They never go away. Uh, and of course, there are, there are also newer issues, such as today with Pope Francis, uh, the issue of integral e uh, uh, ecology and so forth. But Leo always has to be studied and restudied because he presented, I would say, the central paradigm of the thinking. And it, it transcends just the mid-19th century. He was also an extraordinarily clear thinker and writer. And many of his encyclicals on these issues, you know, 100-plus years later, uh, are just models of clear thinking and uh, compelling writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you, you touched on those those larger thematic questions. Uh, you know, and we think of Rerum Novarum of the new thing, the new uh, social things that were unfolding in the late nineteenth century as well. But uh, you know, again, I'm not trying to you know impute everything to the pandemic, but I, I think it's uh, kind of highlighted for us again the question of labor and you know what does it mean to to be gainfully employed to support a family and how does society uh, look to you know means of uh, transmitting information in that way. So, uh, do you think uh, there's relevance even in his observations of associations for labor and how uh, human beings by their industry and productivity uh, not only enrich themselves but the larger society. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, when I was uh, much younger and we were reading the French existentialists like Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. And, uh, <laughs> always Sartre always uplifting wonderful... fair. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Sartre had this wonderful line that we used to tease each other about in high school, in which in one of his plays called No Exit, a character says, hell is other people. <laughs> and there was this kind of, uh, a kind of 20th century modernism that wanted to glorify and bless the kind of isolated individual who's, you know, who's tough, who can do his own thing. And, boy, if anything has blown that idea out of the water, it's the last five or six months of COVID-19, in which the whole world is desperate to reestablish social contacts. I mean, even going into uh, record levels of depression and alienation, uh, uh, hell turns out to be living forever with a mask and unable to go to church and, you know, to have to avoid elevators in your building. So COVID is a, is, is a wonderful petri dish 
so to speak, for uh, understanding how much we really need uh, social relationships. Yeah, sometimes despite ourselves, amen, brother, I think, you know, that that insight, there is something yearning for us. And uh, even our, uh, Stan, our seminarian gatherings, you know, this past week, we tried to social distance and everything else, and we had time of prayer, uh, blessed sacrament, adoration, our 19 Des Moines seminarians who will be resuming their fall studies here, or beginning fall study programs. But then we just had to be together for that meal yeah, at true. the end, yeah, right? Yeah. We, uh, you know, there was just that overriding in- inclination to be together in that It's been way. a long summer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Russ, Professor Hittinger, uh, we think about social justice in the Catholic tradition and how it's understood. Do you think uh, sometimes it, it gets a little bit uh, you know, deflected from the understanding that uh, Leo and others have, have tried to hold up to us, or even the broader intellectual tradition? Well, yeah, because in, in our time, social justice, it, it's, it's quite nebulous what it even means. But I would say in a broad and general sense, it means changing social structures. It, it's, it's, a, it's a command or a, a, a quest to change social structures. And, well, sometimes social structures do need to be changed, uh, and sometimes they are changed and they're not just at all. But I, I would say, once upon a time, social justice in the Catholic world meant something much more concrete. It was the obligations of the members of a society to the common good. Right? The, so social justice was the justice of, of the parts or the members of a social body doing what they can in their actions, and sometimes things like taxes as well, to support the commonality. It, it, it didn't immediately mean changing social institutions. Hmm. Uh, so, Dr. Hittinger, um, at the seminary I go to, it's at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, and part of their uh, motto is, all for the common good. And sometimes we kind of <laughs> are curious exactly what the school uh, means by, by the common good, but I'm curious what, what you would say. Well... You're right. Common good can mean quite different things, even contradictory things. But I would say that there are two uh, central meanings of it. Uh, common good can mean all of those, all of those conditions that that touch upon the lives of everyone. I mean, there are conditions. I mean, we need clean water. We need uh, we need access to education. Uh, we need access to law to even get our contract. Uh, those are common goods because they touch almost everybody, mm. and no one can claim it's a merely private good, you see. Uh, but, but the chief meaning of common good in the Catholic tradition are not just things like water systems and clean air and things like that. It's actually the communion between human beings. So... Uh, when you're married, for instance, you're in a, it's called the matrimonial bond. That is the common good. The common good is the bond itself. Or we could say the common good is the friendship. So if you leave a friendship, you can't take away 35% of the friendship. It either exists as common or it doesn't exist at all. And that's why things like, things like fresh water can exist, right? 
I mean, they can exist, and, and you can keep on dividing it. I mean, I, I drank uh, two glasses of it that came out of my private uh, spigot this morning. So, but true common good, without qualification, is social, and it's the union or friendship between two or more people. Hmm. That's, that's the plutonium grade, meaning a common good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love the, the turns of phrase. So, you know, if we link these social justice and common good and we think about, you know, the events of this summer and Black Lives Matter, you know, that, yeah, that there are some unjust social structures that need to be uh, transformed and revised, but we're trying to enlist participation. So a kind of divisive pitting uh, different segments of society against each other is going to actually undermine the common good in, in the larger scheme of things. And so how people participating and full uh, acknowledging their uniqueness in, in that way but uh, that the something common in our activity with each other emerges from all of that and uh, professor Hinge, you've been one who's really kind of uh, you know kind of uh clarified and, and intensified my understanding of that as well. Uh, we're, we're coming up on a break, uh, Professor Hinger. If we can ask you to carry over with us one more break, you'd be uh, blessing us today with a little more time. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll be right back with uh, Making It Personal with Bishop William Johnson on Iowa Catholic Radio and the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Is it time for a new roof? Then it could be time for you to get to know Bell Construction. Bell Construction is a roofing company entering its 30th year of business. They specialize in residential re-roofs, like commercial jobs, and have the experience to meet all of your roofing needs with personal service. With Bell Construction, the owner will come to your home or place of business in person to inspect and ensure the quality of work that you deserve. They pride themselves in working with you on a personal basis and making sure you are satisfied. Bell Construction, 515-963-4494. Thank you, Big Red Q Quick Print, for underwriting the sports report. Family owned and operated since 1980, Big Red Q Quick Print is a full service print shop ready to help you with all your printing needs with speed and accuracy. Forms, manuals, brochures, letterhead, envelopes, business cards, custom invitations, design, and bindery. Big Red Q Quick Print, located across from Merle Hay Mall. Online at bigredq des Moines.com. Big Red Q Quick Print. We make printing easy. Welcome back to Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. Uh, thanks to our guests and all our listeners in Iowa, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. And uh, we continue here with this last segment of the show. Thank you, uh, Russ, Professor Hinger, for indulgence. I, you have me thinking now about water in the central and western Iowa. It's becoming very controversial with the Raccoon River Basin and the, the water supply here as well. But uh, we're conscious of our friends in the west who are very uh, suffering for lack of uh, water and the drought conditions that prevail. Just uh, kind of lurching to one more topic here in our remaining minutes, you know, uh, when you talk uh, that social justice teaching, relationship of society, state, and religion, uh, religious freedom is a point of contention. Uh, and it just has the church always been its greatest ally in defending religious freedom? And do you have glimmers of hope in the United States with the recent Supreme Court decision? So broad question. I know you can't exhaust it, but uh, anything you'd like to, to share some wisdom about? Well, you know, the wherever the church is, uh, alive. Wherever the church is alive, there will always be problems of relationship between church and the rest of that society. It, it's, it's inevitable, because uh, the, the church is, in a way, because of its founder, Jesus Christ, it's a sign of Jonah. It's, it's a sign of contradiction. 
And so the church will... This issue of religious liberty and what are the proper relations between uh, church and the rest of the society will always be with us. It's not just an American problem or a French problem or a Chinese problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, our Supreme Court has been the primary, I would say, the primary uh, political body to supervise church-state relations really since the 1940s. And so uh, we always want to pay attention to what the Supreme Court has to say in, in uh, its case law about uh, First Amendment, religious liberty, uh, and so forth. And, by the way, its track record over the last 60 or 70 years can zigzag quite a bit. And so I say any particular decision by the Supreme Court is is less than final. Who knows what they're going to say two years from now, because uh, the case could provide a different set of facts or something. But I was very pleased to see in the Espinoza versus Montana uh, decision this summer that the Supreme Court uh, forbade the state government, any state government, from subsidizing private education, like providing scholarship monies or whatever, private education now, but not religious private education. And I thought this was a very important decision because the the court said, look, a state government, Iowa or Montana or whatever, it doesn't have to subsidize private education. I mean, all it has to do is leave private education free to be private education. It doesn't have to give it money or subsidize it. But if it does subsidize it, it can't uh, deny uh, subsidies to private education that's religious. I thought that was a very, very important point. Uh, So this does not confuse religion with the state. But what it does is it allows religion to be have, an, have equal dignity in the private sphere, the non-state sphere uh, of education, and fair is fair. I thought that was a very clean, well-reasoned judgment, which, by the way, is, uh, has some importance for what states do henceforth. Indeed, indeed, and uh, and it hits home for all of us in the United States, but certainly here in the uh, Diocese of Des Moines, as uh, we continue to petition our, our legislators to, to think and include the, the parochial education in any larger package and things, and we may be, uh, and be having a visit of the Vice President Pence uh, here next week. We'll see if he engages some of our parochial school parents and leaders and kind of holding up that, that opportunity for them. Always good to be with you. Uh, when they relieve the French tariffs on, on French the tears on French wine. Uh, looking forward to sharing a glass with you when all things are safer to be together, Russ. But uh, God's blessing on you, and may you and your loved ones be safe. Thank you very much okay. for listening. Uh, this is Making It Personal with Bishop Johnson. You can hear Making It Personal with Bishop William Johnson every week on Iowa Catholic Radio and iowacatholicradio.com.